Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm your producer, Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Recently, Rob completed a teaching series entitled Save, Sing, and Share the Hymns. This course will teach you how the book of Psalms was arranged and motivate you to create a personal hymn book inside your mind. You'll also journey alongside a young music minister as Rob guides him through 60 classic hymns we should never lose. This unique course includes a downloadable guide to the book of Psalms, live music samples of select hymns, and a bonus interview with worship professor Vernon Whaley. For a limited time, we're offering this nine-session online course at a 50% discount. Visit robertjmorgan.com and click on the Courses link to find and enroll in this self-paced study using any computer or mobile device. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. I'm Robert Morgan, and I want to continue today this series of studies we have in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and we're coming today to chapter 9. So if you have, if you're where you can open a Bible, then open your Bible and study along with us as you are turning there. I want to make a special announcement. Um, my alma mater, Columbia International University, has just updated and relaunched a website featuring the lectures of the greatest professor that I ever had in my life. His name is James Hatch. He went by the nickname Buck. And now CIU has taken his great courses, his lectures, his chapel addresses, uh, every video or tape they could find, and they have put it on a website where it is available absolutely free, and it is buckhatchlibrary.com, B-U-C-K-H-A-T-C-H library, buckhatchlibrary.com. And the courses that really changed my life and um, did more than anything else to develop my understanding of the Bible and of ministry. They're all here, like hermeneutics and progress of doctrine and how to study the Bible and and uh, progress of redemption um, and marriage and family life. Uh, these uh, wonderful lectures are here. I still listen to them 50 years after having sat under his feet. So check that out. That's my suggestion today, a free resource that is unbelievably rich, buckhatchlibrary.com. Well, the story of Saul's conversion is found three times in the book of Acts. It's found historically in chapter 9, and then Paul recounts it to a particular group in chapter 22, and he does the same again in chapter 26. So Luke gives us Paul's conversion three times in this book of Acts. It really is remarkable, and uh, I'm not exactly sure um, why there is so much ink given to this, but every one of these three accountings adds a detail here or there that the others don't have, and to really understand what happened on that day. And to Paul, you need to read all three of them. We'll get to all three of them eventually. But today, let's just begin with chapter 9. So the book of Acts, chapter 9. And at the end of this, I want to give you a special prayer coming out of this chapter. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now this phrase, still breathing out murderous threats, 
tells us a great deal about the obsessive anger and the intellectual and the emotional hatred that Saul had towards these Christians, why it was that he was so obsessed and inflamed against them, we can only begin to understand that some psychologically and spiritually, but he was on a rampage against them. And they are called here the Lord's disciples. One of the interesting things that I'll point out as we go through the chapter is how many different synonymous terms are used to describe Christians. Here, you are described as the Lord's disciple. So Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, it's not all that far from Israel across the border to Damascus, Syria. Um, It was um, a bit of a uh, walk, but you could get to Damascus um, by two different roads. And so the early church, the Christians were spreading out to as far as Damascus and beyond. And so Paul wanted authority so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, another synonym for Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, came the voice. Now, I am certain that the light that uh, Saul of Tarsus saw wasn't just like the flash of some photographer's light. It wasn't just a flash of some kind of glory. I think that Jesus really revealed himself to Saul in the sky with such brightness. His intrinsic, essential nature is light that, Paul, that Saul was instantly blinded. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16 that the Lord dwells in inapproachable light. We're told in Psalm 104 and verse 2 that he clothes himself with light. In Matthew 17, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, the disciples saw at least a portion of our Lord's essential glory. And it says that his face was as bright as the sun and his clothing glowed with luminescent brightness. And in the book of Revelation, we're told again in chapter 1 that when John saw him in a vision, he was as bright as the sun. And we're told in Revelation 21 and 22 that the new Jerusalem, the city of New Jerusalem, will not need the sun or the moon. It doesn't say that there will not be a sun and a moon for the new heavens and the new earth, but it says that we'll not need it because the entire city will be electrified and energized and uh, lit up by the light that is emanating from Jesus. The Lamb is the lamp of the city of New Jerusalem. I think, in fact, that we'll need at the resurrection glorified, modified eyesight so that we'll not be instantly blinded. So I think that Saul of Tarsus was, well, the Lord Jesus revealed himself as he really is in his bright and shining, brilliant glory. And that is what blinded instantly the eyes of this man. And he fell down and heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, 
Saul of Tarsus wasn't literally persecuting Jesus. Jesus was in heaven. But he was persecuting the body of Jesus, the church. And that was very personal. It was as though he was persecuting Jesus himself. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Notice that phrase, three days. I'm really amazed how often that phrase occurs in the Bible. And it seems to me this is suggestive of the fact that there is in some way a replication of the Calvary experience here. Here, Saul glimpsed Jesus and then for three days didn't have any Jesus, any hope, any life, any food, any drink, any spirit, and then he saw Jesus again, and he was permanently transformed. This is what happened to the 11 disciples in the Gospels. They were with Jesus. They saw him. And then suddenly for three days, their hearts were blinded. Everything was dark. And then they saw him again, and their lives were changed. So Saul here is having a delayed Calvary experience. And in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias one of those whom Saul was coming to persecute. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on State Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. So we know that during these three days, Saul received a vision and in that vision, he saw Ananias coming to him. And this is the first of many revelations that Saul of Tarsus is going to have. Paul is taught by the Lord Jesus after his conversion the way the disciples were taught in the Gospels. He was taught personally, only he couldn't follow Jesus around in the country lanes of Galilee or in the bustling streets of Jerusalem. So instead, he was taught by revelation. And Paul will have a lot to say about that in his epistles. So here is his first revelation. He saw that there was a man coming for him named Ananias. Ananias was understandably hesitant. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all of the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Now, there is another way that Christians are described. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest, and here's another phrase, all who call on your name. So just so far, in this text, and we're only in verse 14, Christians are called the Lord's disciples, those who belong to the way, God's holy people, and those who call on his name. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So here was a man who was making others suffer, but God was calling him to a life of suffering. He was chosen. Saul of Tarsus 
was deliberately chosen by God. Now, Saul came from Tarsus, which was a city, uh, and we would say today southern Greece, but it was in between Europe and Asia. It was a great university town. It was a place where there were Jews um, and a synagogue that Saul no doubt grew up in. There was a great deal of Roman influence there, and there was also tremendous Greek influence. And so Saul grew up in this uh, cosmopolitan area. He was educated in Jerusalem. He was absolutely brilliant. He was zealous, uh, as we've already seen here. And so he was just perfectly made to be God's chosen instrument as an extra unexpected apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and to the kings of the earth. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, that is Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. Now, in my opinion, this is the moment of Saul's conversion experience. This is when he was born again. And I had a professor at Columbia International University who also said that. Some people may think that he was born again when he saw the light or during the three days when he's praying. But it seems to me here that his physical sight returning is symbolic of his gaining spiritual sight. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Oh, how we need to regain our strength. And sometimes it takes three days of rest and then having an experience with the Lord and getting up and taking some food. So going on with verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples. And there's that word again, in Damascus. Damascus, we know to have been a walled city. Uh, it was a very busy commercial area. Uh, Gentile area. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. It didn't take Saul years or weeks or even days to begin uh, telling people what had happened to him. He started instantly, and all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take as prisoners these people to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. How did he do that? Well, undoubtedly, Saul was well-versed in Old Testament Scripture. I mean, he knew the Hebrew Scriptures, and instantly he began putting together the pieces, and he could see who Isaiah 53 was talking about. He could see who Psalm 22 was talking about, and he began saying, don't you see these Old Testament prophecies? Don't you know how Jesus Christ fulfilled them? Look at this. You can prove, you can demonstrate the veracity of who Jesus was. Furthermore, he said, look at my own change of life. So it says in verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of this plan. It's not going to be the last time people try to kill him. 
And day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lured him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Somehow I can just see this basket. It must have been a pretty big basket uh, or Saul wasn't a very big person. And they must have tied it very well. And Saul crawled inside of it and it must have bounced against the stones as it went down that wall. But in this way, at night, he escaped. And he went to Jerusalem. It says in verse 26, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, that is the Christians, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. Now, Barnabas, remember, was the son of encouragement who we had been introduced to earlier. And Barnabas was someone who was always willing to give somebody a chance. He took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. I can only imagine what the high priest and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin were saying. They must have been pulling out their hair. Verse 29, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea. This would be the same place where later he would be in prison for two years, but it was the primary harbor for Israel, which had been built by Herod the Great as the headquartering city for the Roman troops, and they sent him off to Tarsus. So now Saul goes back to his hometown and to Tarsus. There, apparently, he will not be received very well. We believe that's Uh, the area in which he received from the Jews 39 stripes repeatedly. But it's also the area where he began receiving revelations from God, and he began really growing in his knowledge so that when he showed up later as the great evangelist he was, he would be well prepared both by his experiences, by his ministry time in uh, Tarsus, which we are not told a great deal about and by the revelations that God gives him. So suddenly Saul disappears for a while, but it says that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So that's the story of the conversion of Saul. Now, the remainder of the chapter reverts back now to Peter, and we have Peter's story uh, right up until we are reintroduced to Saul at the end of chapter 12. The thing that I want to end with is this. Saul of Tarsus, Paul, later told Timothy that his conversion was a symbol for all of the church. It was a sign that if... God could save me, he could save anyone. I was the chief of sinners, he said, and God was pleased to show his grace in me at the beginning of Christian history so that as time goes by, everyone will know that nobody is hopeless, that we can all come to know Jesus Christ and we shouldn't give up on anyone. Um, This is... um, uh, exactly who Paul was and what he 
why his conversion is so important. It was a conversion in which, well, let me just read it to you. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, and he considered me trustworthy, appointed me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe on him and who would receive eternal life. Paul was saying, the conversion of someone like me at the beginning of Christian history is a sign that even the worst of sinners can be saved. We shouldn't give up on anybody. Now, that brings me to the prayer that I want to close with and that I want to share with you. It's a very simple little prayer, but I have a handful of people who grew up under my ministry who are as far away from the Lord now. I remember them as children growing up in church, and I preach to them, and I love them to this day. But some of them are very far from the Lord, and there is one in particular who is so on my heart and I pray virtually every day. I have a little page in my prayer journal, and it's for prodigals. And I think it's the most difficult page. When I come to it, I have to really trust the Lord that he is listening to my prayers because, frankly, I've not seen a great deal of movement in the Lord answering these prayers. But it says in the Bible that we should always pray and never give up. So here is my prayer for especially one particular young person who is hardened in sin and far away from the Lord and reminds me of Saul of Tarsus before his conversion, I say, Lord, strike him with a bolt of Damascus road lightning. Strike him with a bolt of Damascus road lightning. Lord, give him a Damascus road experience. Lord, make yourself known to him and bring him to become a great, fearless servant of the Savior. So that's a prayer that I've extrapolated out of this in which I pray every day for one young person in particular, but really for a number of them. And I'm not going to give up praying. If the Lord can bring Saul of Tarsus to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, then he can bring your loved one or the person you're concerned with. Or maybe, you know, I've known people who got a burden for someone who is a celebrity or someone they've never known but is well-known in public life, and they just start praying for that person that he or she may be saved. Let's begin asking God for bolts of Damascus Road lightning that will strike people and turn them into great and zealous followers of Jesus Christ. He did it here. He's done it many times in Christian history. To some extent, he's done it for you and for me. And so let's continue praying and remember that there is no one outside of the reach of the grace of God when they show up at just the right time and place on the road to Damascus. 
Well, this is Robert Morgan. We'll pick it up at this point next time. And I appreciate your listening. This podcast is produced by Clearly Media and Joshua Rowe. It's edited by Elijah Rowe and by others who are involved in our ministry here. And we are working hard to produce resources for you for every day and for all occasions. So check them out at robertjmorgan.com. And may the Lord bless you richly until we meet again.